Well, good morning. Hey, what a great crowd for a uh, holiday weekend. Thank you for taking time to, uh, to be here. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's worthy of a clap. Good job. Well, I'm going to jump right in, but uh, I want to tell you, this is going to be a different message today. So the video really kind of puts the bullseye on the wall for you, and I'll clarify that for you in just a little, little bit, in just, just a minute or so. But um, today's message is about the promises of God and valuing the promises of God, how we deal with the promises of God. But it probably won't look like that. It'll probably look like something else. So, hey, the good news is you get two messages for the price of one today, my gift to you. Um, so uh, sit back and enjoy that. Well, let's start right here with Genesis 22. This is the bullseye for today. Genesis 22 says, Through your offspring, Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Through Abraham's offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because they obey him. So that's really where we're headed. That's the promise. And as I said, we're going to take kind of a different route to get there, but that's where we'll end up. So, and I know Ben made the announcement. You probably got an email a couple days ago. This will be a uh, R-rated message, and probably even, not probably, it'll even be beyond that in a couple points for a minute or two. So uh, hang on. So, um, but it'll all be from God's Word, okay? So don't, don't have to worry about that. Well, we have gotten used to uh, hearing about scandals, so that's kind of bad news. We, we get used to hearing about scandals, and that's not anything new in the last, you know, four, five, six years. That's always been the case. There's always been scandals out there that we hear about, and we, of course, the, they're uh, often of a sexual nature. And so in a big picture we hear about, on a grand scale, we hear about uh, sexual sins, sexual situations with politicians. Uh, we hear about entertainers and athletes and other kinds of celebrities. Uh, we come a little closer to home, and you might uh, be familiar with some sort of sexual uh, conflict uh, in your neighborhood, maybe within your family, unfortunately. Get a little closer to home, uh, students and teachers, doctors and patients. Uh, and so we come to church. It's kind of unplugged from all that and come to church to be refreshed. And you hear about that in churches, too. Uh, depending upon uh, if you read any Christian news sites, you don't generally hear this unless it's a huge mega church with a super famous pastor. But depending upon uh, if you read any Christian news sites, you see this stuff all the time, several times a week. Uh, some pastor of some big congregation you've never heard of in another part of the country, he's had an ongoing affair with somebody he worked with or somebody who attended their church, and it's been going on for years, and it finally came to light. And it seems like there's always a financial component in that, too, to further uh, escalate the, the conflict or the, the weirdness of the whole thing. So we want to unplug from all that, so we go to God's Word. Man, I just want to, I need to get away from all that garbage, go to God's Word to be refreshed, and I start reading God's Word, and I read about polygamous marriage. I'm like, oh, jeez. Incest and rape and adultery. And I come to the story of uh, uh, Samson, and that has, of course, a sexual nature to it, sexual sin. And we go to David and Bathsheba, and we fast forward into the New Testament, and we've got Paul addressing the church in Corinth. It's like, I cannot get away from this stuff. Uh, that's right, because it's everywhere. But here's the deal. These sexual sins and these sexual uh, things that we hear about, these scandals, they're never about the sex. It's never about that. That's what gets the headlines for sure, 
But that's not the bottom line. That's not really what they're all about. They're always about something deeper, and we'll get to that in just a second. But I want to look at one of those instances in the Bible where there's something of a sexual nature, but it's really about something else uh, underneath that. So we're going to dive into that and its connection to God's promise. So to do that, I need to give you a little background. So as background, here's a piece of uh, Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And it says this, kind of a weird law to us, but it says if two brothers are uh, living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. This is called a Leverite marriage. It's a Leverite marriage is what you call this whole thing. It's not uh, Leverite as in the tribe of Levi. It's Leverite as in a Latin term that refers to a husband's brother. But it's intended to accomplish one thing and one thing only, and that's at the bottom, that last sentence. His name will not be forgotten in Israel. A Leverite marriage arrangement is intended to continue the family line. And in this case, what we're going to talk about today in relation to the promise of God this family line is pointing to the coming of the Messiah. So the stakes are pretty high here. Well, let me shift gears. We're going to look at um, a guy by the name of Judah. He's Jacob's fourth son, with, uh, had with Leah, and he had three sons. So if we go now and apply Gen- Deuteronomy 25 to this verse, we'll go to Deut- Genesis 38, and it says, Now Judah acquired a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, his second son, said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, let me pause here and say, I don't know exactly what Ur's deal was, but I mean, as I read this, the thought occurred to me, like, how wicked do you have to be for the Lord to put you to death? I mean, You've got to be. So we don't know, and I did a little reading on that, not real long, but enough reading to know that nobody really knows what his deal was. But there's a clue in here, and I highlighted that word wicked on purpose because that gives us a clue of what Ur's sin was that led to his death. We know what wickedness is. Uh, Wickedness is something uh, that's evil, something that's unpleasant, both maybe for you, for other people, something that causes pain and misery. But if you read the Hebrew definition of the word wicked, it drills down a little finer, and it has this word attached to it. The word is malignant. You know what a malignancy is? A malignancy is something, uh, a disease that grows and it spreads and it begins to take over and affects other parts. And so whatever Ur's particular brand of sin was, God considered it wicked. He considered it a malignancy that had the potential to grow and to spread and to affect not only him, but affect other people in his family, maybe his community, his community of believers. And so that's how wicked you have to be for God to take your life, is represent uh, a malignancy. Well, let's read on in verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not belong to him So whenever he would sleep with his brother's wife, he would spill his seed on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was malignant in the sight of the Lord, so he had Onan put to death as well. 
So I said just a minute ago that sexual sin is never really about the sex. It's about something else. Likewise, this verse, referring to Onan, isn't really about the sex at all. It's about something deeper than that, much more significant. This is about sin. We know the definition of sin, missing the mark, right? An archer who lines up his arrow and shoots and he misses. That's sin. He missed the mark. So sin is missing the mark, and that's exactly what Onan did. He missed the mark by not valuing God's promise. And toward the end, we'll get into that a little deeper. But sex is simply the vehicle or the way in which Onan missed the mark. So again, it's not about the sex. That's just what he, he used, and, it, it, uh, and he ended up missing the mark. Well, here's a truth you need to know about Satan, okay? Uh, and you probably know this already. John 10, 10, Satan has a mission statement. Like any good corporation or any church or any uh, entity, uh, J- Satan's mission statement in John 10, 10, Jesus says he comes to kill and to steal and destroy. And it's interesting what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he came to create because he doesn't create anything good. He doesn't initiate. He doesn't originate anything. He's the father of lies And he comes to take what God said is good, sex. He takes what God said is good, meant for a man and a woman in a marriage, in a covenant relationship, and he twists it and turns it and makes it all different kinds of things. Kind of becomes a a multi-tool, if you will. Think about a Swiss Army knife or a Leatherman or some sort of a tool that, that, you know, can accomplish lots of different things with just one thing. This is not an exhaustive list, but here's a few highlights of what Satan uh, tries to use sex for, I should say, abuses, how he abuses sex. To have you or I manipulate others and get what we want. Sex can be powerfully used to control other people and to get what what we want, to express anger, anger or to settle a score. I'll show you. I'll put you in your place. I will have my way with you. And in doing so, I get what I want, and I get to um, express my anger toward you or the situation. How about a big dopamine hit just to calm the nerves for a little while? Satan uh, loves to have people use sex for that. Escape boredom, escape stress. I'm just wired, just need to chill. Go into a fantasy world of my creation where, you know, uh, people are always subservient to me and I can control them and I get what I want and I'm the hero and, you know, all this nonsense. How about affirming self? Satan would love to have us use sex to affirm self. I just read a headline this past week. Some um, Disney actor, somebody I'd never heard of, um, because you know, oddly I don't watch a lot of Disney, uh, but some Disney actor, and he, um, he got out of that show, whatever the show was, and he's now in the adult entertainment business. And I didn't read the whole article, but the free, first few paragraphs, he said, um, I left that, and I went, got into adult entertainment, and I feel really bad. And he didn't mean bad like I felt bad about my behavior. He meant bad like I feel really affirmed. Yeah. So he's in the adult entertainment industry, and he feels really, really good about that. The problem with that, the obvious problem with that, is um, sexual sin is like Novocaine. It will numb things out. It might take a while, but it works, right? Novocaine works. Give it a few minutes. 
And sexual sin does the same thing in our lives. Numbs things out, numbs us to our own emotions, to our own feelings, our own motivations. It numbs us to other people. It numbs us to that particular sin. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. It could be worse. Well, it will be. Just hang on. It will be. Because it never, sexual sin is never static. It's always dynamic. It's always growing and, and becoming worse and worse. And so that's Satan's plan. But we are not subservient to Satan's design or his plan, okay? But ultimately, what Satan wants you and I to do is to have distorted relationships. And then even one step further than that is to question God. Why did God even create marriage? Why did God create sex? And this has been nothing but a noose around my neck, for instance. Or it's always terrible, or it's, it's just bad. I don't know why God even created it. You know, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore, as a matter of fact. See the downward spiral of uh, this kind of sin? Sexual sin is ultimately about having real God-given relational needs met in artificial ways. We're hardwired for connection with other people, but when we don't have those in a healthy way, we go seek them out in inappropriate ways. And it seems like relationship, but it's relationship on my terms where I don't get hurt, I don't have to be vulnerable, I don't have to be transparent with anybody, and I don't have to be hurt because it's all me calling the shots. We do what I want when I want it. That's what it's all about. Ultimately, sexual sins about self at the expense of others. So we're going to see from Onan that in one act, in, in one selfish act, he rejected God's promise and he sinned against many people and many groups of people. Primarily sinned against uh, Tamar when it comes to his family. Sinned against his sister-in-law. Sinned against his family. Verse 9 says this, Whenever he would sleep with his brother's wife, whenever he would sleep with his brother's wife, which indicates that this is not a one-time act that we read about where he wastes himself. This is an ongoing thing, whenever. Whenever he would do this, he wouldn't own up to the terms of a Leverite marriage. He wouldn't honor his father. He wouldn't honor his family. He wouldn't honor his dead brother. He wouldn't honor his sister-in-law by giving her an heir to the Messiah. Whenever he did this, it's on and on and on. This is a pattern of behavior that keeps happening. He's not willing to honor the terms of a Leverite marriage. Onan also sinned against himself. You say, well, I don't feel too bad for him. Well, I don't think you should. But here's the truth. The name Onan has a real interesting meaning. The name Onan means uh, vigorous. We know what vigor is. Vigor is, is capacity. It's a certain dynamism. Uh, when it's applied to a male, it implies your masculinity, some capability, and the ability to pass that on to, to the next generation. Onan sinned against himself by wasting the vigor that God gave him, by wasting what God gave him and not passing it on to the next generation. So he sinned against himself. All this vigor, these potential, and the gifts that God gives us, it's meant to be passed on. When that doesn't happen, it affects the next generation. But here's the truth about sexual sin. And I could say this with 100,000% certainty. I don't even have to 
uh, go back through my memory bank and see if there's ever an exception to this. And all the years, probably 28 or 29 years now, I've been talking to people about sexual sin since I was set free of this myself. In all those years, I've never heard one person say this or even intimate this or even begin to say it, but they figured out it was a bunch of BS and so they backed out. They never even say this, and that's this. You know what I feel like as a result of uh, the sexual sin in my life? I feel like I am more um, empathetic toward people. No one's ever said that. I feel stronger. I feel more capable. This actor feels like he's, you know, really bad. Give it time. That'll wear off. No one I ever have talked to has said, this has really been serving me well. I'm going to ramp this behavior up and keep on going because I can see this is really going to pay off for me. No one has ever said that, and here's why. Because sexual sin breeds weakness. Sexual sin breeds weakness. That's all it can do. It produces its own kind, and that's weakness. Well, let me clarify a couple things here because uh, there's a couple uh, kind of wrong teachings or misapplied teachings about this verse uh, uh, regarding Onan. Uh, one is this, is that uh, particularly if you're from a certain theological background, maybe Catholic or something, say this is God's proof uh, text that he forbids um, birth control. And I don't believe that's the case here. First of all, you can't build an entire theology or belief system off of one verse. And so I don't think that's right. Here's, here's another teaching that uh, you read about a lot, well, not a lot, fairly often in, um, uh, in books on sexual addiction or teachings on sexual addiction is this is uh, proofed that God uh, forbids the act of self-gratification. Now, I think when we take the entirety of God's word, it's clear that that's not a good thing to engage in. It's harmful for a lot of reasons. It's sinful. There's, there's so much scripture we could go over. We don't have time. But I don't think this verse is one of them. This is not about uh, self-gratification. This is about not honoring uh, the terms of levirate marriage. So you can read about those on your own sometime. So Onan sinned against his family, Tamar primarily. He sinned against himself. And most importantly, Onan sinned against God. He sinned against God. Now, not that sin has different levels. I mean, to us it does, different levels of severity. But you know, in God's economy, sin is sin. Jesus went to the cross not for different levels of sin. He went to the cross for all sin. But as the oldest surviving son, Ur, or uh, I should say Onan, is a designated ancestor for the line of the Messiah. Since Ur's out of the picture, it's up to Onan now to further the family leading to the Messiah and if you take a look at Matthew and Luke, here's, here's Matthew, you see that uh, Christ, there you, thank you, that the Messiah comes through that family line. We got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Here we get to Judah. And on and on we go to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. And you know the name you don't see there that God's plan was it should be there? You don't see Onan in there. You don't see his brother Ur in there. Both of them were wicked. So they are not part of the line of the Messiah. They took themselves out of the promise. So if you keep reading this Genesis account that we're reading, so if you think this is all weird enough right now, it's going to get real weird here in just a second. It gets, it gets even weirder because that's what people do, right? So um, Genesis, you know, shows finally how Tamar becomes desperate for an heir. She, she wants to avoid the shame of not having a, a child, 
legit. She wants to be uh, in line with the Messiah, which she is. There's Tamar. She wants to further the line of the Messiah. So here's how she goes about it. She disguises herself as a prostitute, goes out to the city, gets hired by a guy to have sex with her. The guy turns out to be Judah, her father-in-law. Yeah, ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she sleeps with her father-in-law and continues the line of the Messiah. I told you it was going to get weirder. So here's a score. Sometimes you need a scorecard to keep these straight. So here's a recap of everything we just talked about. Hit that next slide for us. It says that uh, Onan has a legal right to sleep with Tamar, but he wastes his seed and he wastes his birthright as the forebearer of the Messiah. Now he has a way to appeal that. He could choose to do things his own way, or but he chooses to do his own things his own way. There's actually a way for him to appeal that according to the law. He could, uh, he and Tamar could go to the city, to the elders, to the city, and make a certain appeal. And uh, if uh, he says nope, I don't want to do it, then she can um, remove one of his sandals, spit in his face. Literally, is what it says in Deuteronomy. Spit in his face and proclaim that he is from the family of the unsandaled. So from now on, your entire family in the city, in the region, everybody knows. Stay away from um, Onan. He's of the family of the unsandaled. That's a bad. You don't want to be called that. Yeah. So he could have made an appeal, but he didn't. And then finally, Judah pays for sex with uh, Tamar. And in doing so, Judah plants the seed that his sons should have, but they no longer have the privilege of being in the line of the Messiah. So you notice something, though, that uh, Onan wastes his seed, wastes his vigor, wastes his opportunity, and God kills him. But Judah commits uh, rape and incest and, and sleeps with a prostitute, and he lives. I mean, what's, what's going on there? Does God, you know, approve one but not the other? No, that's not what's going on at all. We'll get to that in just a second, what's, what that's all about. So let me jump to an application here. How does all this apply to us? I and mean, we don't have this uh, strange Jewish law about uh, furthering our family line if, if somebody dies. And, but here's how this, uh, one of these ways, uh, first and most obvious way this applies to us. If you are involved in any kind of sexual sin, and get out. Get out as fast as you possibly can. Go to somebody you trust who won't coddle you and make excuses for you, and get out. Here's what the book of Proverbs says about adultery. We'll just take adultery representing the, you know, the whole spectrum of, of sexual sin. It says this, ask this question, can a man scoop fire in his lap and not be burned? No, obviously you can't. You can't. And so if you're involved in something that you shouldn't be involved with, man, get out. God loves you so much, and there's a way out of that. There is freedom from that. And I'm not talking about, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when I preached, I'm not talking about white-knuckling it and doing my best for the rest of my life and struggling through I mean freedom. Not only um, do, do I uh, not have things in my head and I just choose not to act on them, they don't even come to my head because the helmet of salvation protects that crap from even getting there. So get out. 
as quickly as you can. Now, Satan is a master deceiver. That's what his name means. He's, he's deceptive, and there's a whole spectrum of sexual sin. We won't go through every one of them, but here's a smattering. We can go clear over here where you're not even involved with somebody sexually, but it's um, I'm trading text messages with somebody I work with or somebody at my gym. And it's not overtly sexual. It's just a little flirtation. It's just kind of fun, you know. Um, does my wife know about it? Nah, she wouldn't understand. She doesn't know this person. There'd be no context for her, so I don't bother her with it. That's emotional adultery. And unchecked, that's going to head somewhere you don't, well, it might head somewhere you do want it to, but you shouldn't want it to. Maybe it's not text messages. Maybe it's just a little inside joke we have. We've got a little frame of reference just between us. It's just kind of our thing. Again, it's not overtly sexual, but it's just our little thing we, we joke about. That's emotional adultery. Maybe it doesn't involve another person at all. Maybe it's all up here. I've got a private viewing screen in my mind, and I can put on any video I want at any time and just escape, and I can become who I want and do what I want with no consequences. Maybe that's the sexual sins. Very subtle. Satan prowls about very subtly in private thoughts, and private meditations. Maybe it's more overt. Maybe it's engaging in, in watching pornography, viewing pornography in all its various forms. And then the act of self-gratification. Maybe it's actually sleeping with a person who you're not married to. And let me specify what not married means because I've heard people say, um, oh, but we've been committed. We're not married, but we've been committed to each other for years. We just, it's just, just her and I. We've been committed for years. Well, if you have not made a covenant vow with that person, you're not married. And God says, having sex with somebody, and I'm not using the euphemism sleeping with, and I mean having sex, just so we're clear, if you're having sex with someone you're not married with, that's adultery. And God says that's sin. How about somebody of the same sex? Having sex, having an intimacy with somebody of the same sex. Well, there's so many more things on there, but you get the point. Wherever you might be, if you're on that spectrum at all, wherever you might be, there's a way out. God is so good. There is a way out. God's Word says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to do two things. Forgive us our sins. That's good. I like that. But it gets even better than that and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not like I'm forgiven, but I'm still carrying the burden of all the things that I did. I'm cleansed, and, or I'm forgiven, and I'm cleansed. I don't even carry the burden of all that stuff anymore. I feel like that should be more exciting than it was. Yeah. I mean, I, you are cleansed. You can be cleansed from even carrying that with you. Yes. Amen. Well, uh, Nick asked the worship team to come. This message, as I said, is really about the promises of God, you know, whether we value them enough to trust them, to obey. And we're going to read just a little bit further in Genesis because there's something interesting that happens here in uh, Judah's family. As it turns out, um, Onan has an uncle in his family who does value the things of God enough to obey. You know who this uncle is. His name's Joseph. You know Joseph's story. He was abused by his brothers, 
left for dead. He was his dad's favorite, and that didn't help things much. But he was his father's favorite, left for dead, finally sold into slavery, and he's uh, uh, put on the side of a camel in a, in a basket, and he's taken across the desert into Egypt, and he's enslaved there, and he comes out and starts to work for a guy named Potiphar, who's an Egyptian ruler. He's a slave in Potiphar's home, and one day, as uh, Potiphar is away on some business, Potiphar's wife comes to him and seduces him and says, hey, come to bed with me. Whereas Onan had his own response Joseph's response, you know the story, he turned and he ran. And the story, the way it's written in your Bible indicates that he didn't even think twice about that. He was out of there immediately. And there's two main reasons, I think, for that. One is this. You would expect that after all he'd been through, all the the abuse he'd been through, left for dead, uh, sold into slavery, and just mistreated his entire life, you might well expect that as you read the, the Bible story and we come to Potiphar's wife, you might think the next thing that would be read would be this. Um, thus, um, thus Joseph, uh, you know, conceived with Potiphar, you know, because he owed it to himself because he'd been abused his whole life. Clearly, it doesn't say that. And here's why, I think. Because though uh, Joseph was abused, though he was mistreated, though he was victimized, he didn't see himself as a victim. A victim mentality, a victim belief would say, you know what, I owe it to myself, man. Potiphar will never know. Um, After all I've been through, just one time, why not? And he didn't do that, didn't even think about it. Though he was victimized, he wasn't a victim. But the second reason, and I think the most important reason he didn't do that is this. Verse 9 says, How then could I do such a malignant thing and sin against God? Not only would I be sinning against Potiphar, my master, not only would I be sinning against his wife, not only would I be sinning against me, this malignancy could get planted into me and I might get comfortable with this behavior, with this attitude. And then it might grow in me. And then I'll just become used to it and I'll be, you know, I'll be okay with this. I don't want to be okay with this. Not, but even more than that, how could I do this wicked thing and sin against God? I don't want, I think Joseph's saying, I don't want to turn my back on him for one millisecond because I might get used to that and I might like what's on the other side. And before I know it, I'll be far away from God in my relationship with him. And he wouldn't have it. He would, that's a different response, clearly, than an onan. So he asked the question earlier, what's the deciding factor between life and death, between onan and Judah and onan and Joseph? Here it is. I apologize. I should have made a slide for this. Here's the difference. Onan's primary sin and wickedness And the deciding factor between spiritual life and spiritual death is a willingness to be in alignment with the promises of God to such a degree that we obey. It's a willingness to be in alignment with the promises of God to such a degree that I'm willing to obey. Though Onan knew God's promise, he didn't obey it. He didn't take it seriously. Jim Simbla is a pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle. He said this. He said, God gives promises, so we will pray the promise back to him and wait and worship until he fulfills that which he said. 
I'll read that again. God gives promises, so we will pray the promise back to him and wait and worship until he fulfills that which he said. So you think about any promises you've ever read in God's word, one that maybe really resonated with you back in a time of need or just a different point in your life. Maybe it's something you read just recently. Maybe it's something you're going through now and you've read a promise of God. What uh, Jim Symbol is saying is hang on to that promise. Pray it back to God. Hold God to it. Pray that back to him until he fulfills it. So the starting point, yes, what's the starting point for shedding sin, whether it's sexual sin or otherwise? What's the starting point for that? And also the starting point for beginning to value God's promises. Where does that start? It starts where it ends. That's with Jesus. Here's what Peter said. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your malignant ways. God sent Jesus to us to turn us from our malignant ways, our sinful ways, our wicked ways, if we want to say yes to him. So the one the promise points to is the one who makes the promise possible.